It's good to be with y'all this morning. I, uh, I remember, if any of y'all had similar experience to me, I grew up in the church, as I've told you, and that was uh, three times a week, twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday. And I remember, I don't remember exactly what year it was when the Sunday school board revised the hymnal. Probably early 90s, maybe 93 is what's coming to mind. Somebody can correct me later if that's wrong. And uh, Miss Mona, can I get some cucumbers? See you later. Love cucumbers. Slice them and eat them. My man Lewis loves cucumbers. Anyway. So they updated the hymnal, and there were a couple of songs like that one in it. And it was a big deal. We hadn't had praise choruses before in the Baptist hymnal. Songs that my grandfather, Papa, affectionately called 7-Eleven songs. Seven words, 11 times. (laughs) That was rude of Papa. He's since repented. But I loved that one. And I remember as a seventh grader, and y'all, this was the first time I was ever asked to preach, I guess. It was at the FCA meeting before school in the fall of my seventh grade year, which would have been 1993 or four. And Brandon, preacher's kid, he'll, he'll, he'll bring the devotion. So I did, and I stood up in front of however many high schoolers and middle schoolers. It was all in one school, seven through 12 was my school. And they were a little, you know, they were whispering and I don't know. The Holy Spirit came over me and said, you know, it would be a great way to get their attention. It's just to sing that song. And I did. And it got their attention. And they didn't, uh, they didn't budge. And I proclaimed the gospel that morning. And that's a good memory. It's a beautiful song, Aaron. Now, that's not the answer for everybody. I don't advise you when you're trying to, you know, proclaim the gospel to just walk around singing that song. Maybe. But it doesn't have to be that you know, that way that we get others' attention. Much more likely is that, and what we are trying to go for here, as we encourage gospel conversations, that's what we say around here, is this posture in your life where you are ready at any moment to proclaim the hope that you have in Jesus uh, in in an effective, non-weird way, I think, Walking up to somebody and singing that chorus would be weird, okay? So I don't advise that as a rule. But to be ready to explain what you believe at any time, yeah. And even more so than that, to just live your life in a way that what you believe becomes known over time. Eugene Peterson, I mention him often, pastor that I love to read, uh, who has since passed away recently, but one of his first of so many books uh, was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, that is how he characterized the life of faith for a Christian. A long obedience in the same direction. I love that. So as we talk about following and being formed by Jesus, that is what is in my mind as I say that, this encouraging one another to Stay the course, to keep focused, to have a long obedience focused in one direction. Sure, we'll 
have sidesteps, missteps. We'll even go backwards at times. But we help one another along to continue going in that long obedience in the same direction. So thus has been the, you know, impetus and emphasis over the last three weeks if we, as we have looked at the mission statement together to try to put context around what it is that we're called to do as people following and being formed by Jesus here at the church at Harpeth Heights. And so this morning brought us to Mark chapter 12 that I read earlier, verses 28 through 34. And I, I, I think about this long obedience in the same direction because when I read this story of Jesus' interaction with this teacher, with the scribe, his question to Jesus strikes me as a question that is much more in the vein of, hey, just boil it down for me. Let's just get to the bottom of this as quickly as we can. Give me what I need to know to get this right in the shortest amount of time. And it strikes me that, yeah, right thinking is necessary for right living ultimately, but history has shown us time and time again that right thinking does not always lead to right living. I have to remind myself so often that God's plans for our church are so much bigger than anything that I could come up with, thankfully, and that those plans are good, even though they may not look exactly what our right thinking might have them look like at any given time. A pandemic that's lasted more than 18 months certainly was not on my list. And the question asked of Jesus is even predicated on, on this idea that Jesus was answering a, a group of teachers of the law that had gathered around him, a group of scribes, people knowledgeable in the law, and they were asking him questions, and he was giving answers that were drawing more and more people to him. He was answering them well, the text says. So they asked this particular teacher asked Jesus to do what rabbis were often asked to do, to evaluate the laws by asking Jesus which is the most important, which command supersedes all the others. Now, a great deal went into being a good Jew, a good rabbi, and abiding in the Torah. There were 613 laws, I've been told. I haven't counted them, but I trust that that's at least close. And occasionally they would contradict one another in some slight form or fashion. Case in point, the one that I usually go to and explain this, I don't know if I've explained it this way to you before, but you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. But if your neighbor's camel fell in a hole, you were supposed to help them get it out of the hole, being a good neighbor. Well, that was categorized as work. And so if that happened on Sabbath, what do you do? Well, the rabbis took the time to explain what you should do, which laws were greater than the others. So a question, which of these commands is the greatest, would be a question that would not have been surprising to be asked. Now, Jesus has asked this question, and his posture is so different than mine often is when I'm asked questions. I love being asked questions, but I get really anxious at times because I want to be right I can get so easily wrapped, you know, so wrapped up in how sound my answer is, how it makes me look. Well, Jesus' answer is, it's flipping that. He's explaining what humility 
looks like. And I, the word humility is important for us to consider this morning in the light of this text. I love what my Bible dictionary that I use, my Hebrew Bible dictionary, explains it, it, it amongst a lot of explanation for what humility looks like. I love that it's even one of the entries in my Bible dictionary because it's such a consistent theme throughout the scriptures that it's right there, this long explanation of what humility looks like. And it says humility is avoiding even the appearance of lording over others. That's good. And that reminds me of a passage a couple of chapters earlier in Mark's gospel where Jesus is addressing James and John who come to Jesus asking, hey, Jesus, we would like to sit next to you in glory. When you take your rightful spot as king, we'd like to be right there on your right and your left. And this is Jesus's response beginning in verse 42 of Mark chapter 10. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility. Son of man did not come be served, to serve. Okay, so Giannis Giannis Antetokounmpo is uh, somebody that I followed. He plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. He's an NBA champion now. Maybe you saw this this week. And I was always intrigued by his athleticism. He's He's a gigantic man and he's a good basketball player. But now that they've won the NBA championship, we've learned more about him. And he's one of my favorite players now. So it has come to light through this last few weeks that he has a surprisingly tame ego as it goes for professional athletes, particularly NBA players. And he was asked recently in a press conference, maybe you saw this, maybe you didn't, but I'm going to tell you about it. He was asked how that's the case. How does he have this, um, you know, small ego? How did he learn this? What gives here? Now, what we need to understand about Giannis is he was uh, his home country is Greece, and he and his brothers and family were were homeless for much of the time when he was a kid. And a a side story that I read after the NBA Finals was that when in his first year in the league, and he got paid for the first time, he went straight, he took a cab, or an Uber, I guess, to, uh, to Western Union, and he wired every dollar from that check to his family back in Greece. And then he stood there and realized he had no money left to get an Uber back to his apartment. And it was snowing. And so he jogged back home. Now we know this story because it's told by the Milwaukee Bucks fan who picked him up and gave him a ride home that night. His answer to the reporter that asked him how he manages to keep this humility Small ego was pure gold. He said this, life has taught me. Life's taught me. And usually in my experience, when I think to myself, oh, yeah, I did this or I did that. I scored 40 points. I had 20 rebounds. I'm this, I'm that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad the next day. I'm going to be in trouble soon. I'm going to get knocked down. He said, because when you, when you focus on your past, that's your ego. He said, when you focus on your future, in my experience, that's your pride. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to have 40 points. I'm going to have 20 rebounds. He said, what I've tried to do is focus on the present. 
least to me, this is humility. This is being humble. This is setting no expectations. This is going out there and enjoying the game that I've been gifted to be able to play. And I have had people throughout my life to help me with this. His goal is humility. And that is refreshing. Jesus' answer to the scribe here is the best recipe for humility. His answer is love the Lord first with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love for God and love for others. I sat recently at a coffee shop in Franklin, just over here. I've really missed doing that, y'all. This is an aside, but um, I've missed that maybe most of all during the pandemic. So much of the work I've gotten to do over the last however many years has been done in places like that where random gospel conversations can happen with just about anybody, and I just love the vibe in those places. And so I've missed that. So I was there recently, and I looked over, and it was right next to Franklin um, Downtown Presbyterian Church. And it was within eyeshot of their church sign, which says, Serving Christ and Neighbor at the Crossroads. It's right there uh, where several of the streets uh, come together in Franklin. I guess that's what the Crossroads means. It's a beautiful sign. It's a beautiful church and a mission that is no doubt derived from our text here in Mark 12 or in the similar passages in Luke or Matthew's Gospel. And the gerund in the sign, serving, it's not It doesn't say loving, but it could. Those words are absolutely interchangeable, hardly able to be distinguished between them. And so consider our mission here at the church at Harpeth Heights to engage each whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Well, this is a different, maybe slightly fancier way to say what Jesus is, exactly what Jesus is saying here, to engage someone with the gospel is to love them, to serve them. And we do it patiently. We do it obediently. We do it in the manner in which someone does anything with a long obedience over time in the same direction. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, came to serve and not to be served. It's the, it's the heart behind what we did Friday together in our food pantry. You know, we take prayer requests from each person that comes through the line. We have gotten to know people. And I hope we get to know them in a different capacity over time. I hope they are not always in need of food. But I'm so glad that we have been able to provide, particularly during the last 18 months, where it has been even more necessary. It is something that God has called us to do as a community to help live out what Jesus is saying here. (laughs) <laughs> to live into this long obedience in the same direction. Hey, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know that runs the risk of being something that if, you know, you've been in church like me since the, you know, two hymnals ago, that you've heard many, many times. And it could just wash right over you as something that preachers say. But the most simple recognizable parts of Scripture are oftentimes the parts that are the most important for us to dig our heels in and consider, to ask God to let us see them in a fresh way whenever possible. 
So we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. What does that mean to love ourselves? Do we, do we really do that? Are we supposed to do that? That sounds kind of weird. That sounds like the opposite of what Jesus might be saying here. But you should take care of yourself. And we do. And if you want to know how we should take care of others, a good way to start is just look at how we're prone to take care of ourselves. You know what I do when I'm hungry? I sure do. Second thing, we love God because God first loved us, the first commandment. We can't love God apart from God first loving us, showing us what that looks like, giving us the, 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 the grace and the power to even do that. Love of God is responsive. And God's love for us is sure and constant. We are never alone. God is with us and for us and unto us. Now, love of neighbor is required even when our neighbor does not love us. Even when we don't feel like loving them. Now, in, in my life, this manifests itself far too often in, in sharp answers. And the proverb says, you know, a soft answer is what turns away wrath. But those sharp, grievous answers, they stir up anger. And when I am not committed in my bones in this long obedience in the same direction type of way, my natural reaction to certain circumstances come out in a way that, that does not indicate that I love my neighbor as myself. I love my neighbor very differently than I love myself because in that moment I'm annoyed or I'm, I'm just not realizing that love of neighbor is not contingent upon neighbor's actions. our feeling toward them. Imagine with me for a moment a church, hypothetical, much like ours, who on a given Sunday morning, the good people at that church, they gather, and the reading, the lesson from the text that morning is to be from Psalms and Proverbs. And yet they get there and, sorry, Jay, and every Bible in the place, which you have them in your pews now, every Bible in the place mysteriously is transcribed, transposed to Hebrew. And there's no English anywhere. I had one semester of Hebrew. It all goes right to left. And I know no words. And there are only 7,000 words, so they had to do so much more. And so reading in Hebrew takes... An incredible amount of knowledge, wisdom, a life with it. And that's all that was there. And they had to hear from the word that morning. And what were they to do? Well, they happened to know somebody who could read Hebrew. It was Gus from down the street. He worked at the auto repair shop. He was the son of a rabbi. And he read Hebrew. And so they said, well, we've got to go get Gus. Well, the problem was everybody hated Gus. Gus was awful. He was known in the community as the guy who was just mean. I don't know how his auto repair shop was, was working out for him, but the people at the church didn't like him. But they had to have the text read, so they, somebody went down to get Gus, and they got him. And I don't know how they talked him into coming. I don't know how that conversation went, but he showed up. And he walked right down the aisle. 
to come up and read scripture. Now he was cussing people as he walked down the aisle, but he came to the front. And the first thing he did is he turned the Bible around because it's right to left. And he began reading. And he started to read in the most beautiful Hebrew one could imagine from Psalms and Proverbs. And then he interpreted what it meant. And people were listening and they were thinking they had never heard it like that before. And he read it like it was a part of him. And then he put the Bible down and he walked out. And then the chairman of the deacon approached the pastor and said, Pastor, we've got to fix this. He can't, we can't, we can't have Gus here. He doesn't even like us. Pastor, you have to learn Hebrew. We don't ever want to rely on someone who hates us and who we hate to give us the word of God. I am reminded of this picture, the haunting sign of the young girl in Birmingham following the bombings at the 16th Street Baptist Church. Can a man love God and hate his neighbor? We don't have that picture, but you've probably seen it. African-American little girl holding up a sign in a civil rights museum just outside of it. It's where I, inside the civil rights museum, just outside the 16th Street Baptist Church. Can a man love God and hate his neighbor? Well, church, who is, there it is. Who's my neighbor? It's everyone. It's anyone. Anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Now, (laughs) in my mind, I so often put that to, you know, totally dictated on my terms. You know, when I'm aware of somebody that might need to hear the gospel and then I just approach them with the conversation and it's all based on my timetable, what I have to say, my posture in that moment, that is not what it means. It is anytime, anywhere, with anybody. The Holy Spirit is carving out these divine appointments that can literally be anywhere. So who we are matters so much at any moment. I have got to fix that about me through the Holy Spirit's power in my life, that my natural reaction to circumstance is not as crummy as it so often is. Please forgive me when it's been that way with you. And please forgive me when it's been that way with somebody who's not like you yet, who doesn't follow Jesus and is being formed by him, we are always to be ready to represent our Lord. I don't want to scare you, I'm just being real. But it's not, it's not, it's not supposed to be hard or it is hard, but it's, I don't, this is the moment when the preacher's up here trying to think about what he wants to say. supposed to give you joy more than anything else to love anybody and I'm 41 years old and our world has never been less like that in my experience we are ready to attack to defend to make sure somebody realizes we have the right way of thinking about things instead of just being free To not let things that don't matter, not matter. And to make the main thing, the main thing. 
People who follow and are being formed by Jesus are people who are constantly reminding themselves and others that we're in community with what the main thing is. Love God, love your neighbor, even when it's not reciprocated. The teacher's response, the scribe's response to Jesus is interesting. He affirms what Jesus says. He affirms what Jesus says. Now, seems to me he's leaning in his propensity to think correctly here. Maybe this is some sort of power play, the teacher affirming the student. Still trying to exercise his power over Jesus, lording over Jesus, perhaps. And Jesus had one word for him. You are not far from the kingdom. I believe this to be Jesus referencing that this man still lacked something. Perhaps the man should have asked what it is that I lack, as another man did in the Gospels to Jesus. But Jesus' power is, is emanating from him here, as the text concludes, saying no one dared ask him any more questions. But it occurs to me there should have been more questions. What do I lack? And I want to encourage you, church. As the band comes back up, I want to encourage you to continually be asking what we lack. Not, not as it relates to our salvation. That is secure in Christ. But as it relates to our being formed, our formation in Christ, our long obedience in the same direction, we are constantly asking amongst ourselves, what do we lack? It was church father Augustine who once said the three most important characteristics of a Christian are humility, humility, and humility. There is always more to learn. We are not far from the kingdom, but in God's grace and love for us, which is what allows us to love God in return and love one another well. We will never have to wonder if we can live forever with God. We will never have to wonder what it is that we are supposed to do for God to be with us and for us and unto us because there's nothing that we can do. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves is a response to what God has done. And if this morning you aren't quite, quite tracking with me on that point. I ask you to come see me. Email me. Let me try to engage you in that conversation. Because the most important decision you will ever make in your life is one to commit to following and being formed by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.